This is WSFI Spotlight, a conversation with Catholics living in the light. Hello, my name is Mark Curran. You're listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, and I'm here with Tom Shippers, and you're going to be introduced to Tom Shippers in a minute. We are really excited that you're here with us today. Angela Tomlinson behind the uh, switchboard, keying us up. We're ready to go, aren't we, Tom? Yes, sir. Tom, your name is Thomas Moore Shippers. It's uh, Thomas Moore, patron saint for lawyers and government officials. Tell us a little bit about Thomas Moore Shippers. Well, my, uh, my father was in law school when I was born, and as you mentioned, Thomas Moore is the patron saint of lawyers, and although it was quite embarrassing having a middle name, M-O-R-E, in grade school, when I got older and I realized who Thomas Moore was, and especially when I uh, decided to go to law school and became a lawyer and eventually a judge, I was uh, uh, very, very grateful and humbled uh, that my father would name me after uh, such a wonderful saint. Every day before I went into court, I'd pray for that Thomas More would help intercede for me and guide me in making the right decisions uh, pursuant to the law and the facts. So my middle name was is Cooney, so it could have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas More Shippers, you, you grew up in a family of uh, 10 children and grew up Primarily in the Northbrook area, and St. Norbert's was your parish, right? Correct. And where did you fall in line of those 10 children? Uh, six from the top, five from the bottom. And that might seem wrong to people, but if you do it, it comes out to 10. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting is... Sounds like 11. Your but dad, really David 10. Shippers, who was the well-known lawyer and recently passed, and your mom, Jackie, recently passed. When did they die? Uh, my dad died in October, and my mom in November of 2018. Um, and all the or, children are living? Yes, and all the children are living. They uh, were married for 67 years. Both of them died at home, a very holy and peaceful deaths. With both of them, I could feel, and my siblings could too, all of us that were there, I could feel the presence of our Lord uh, right there. It was just, if dying could be beautiful, that was just a beautiful thing. I agree. I was at both services, and your mom's funeral was kind of wild because as they proceeded in it was as though a marching band singing and, and actually there was like southern jubilee songs right yeah she's from new orleans and so it was a band from new orleans uh, she loved that new orleans music and so my sisters that was their idea ended up being very nice i think when i die tom i want to make sure that there's a, a couple kegs right at the <laughs> the doorway so that you know <laughs> you've heard of an irish wake right that everybody's yeah. able to drink well actually that wouldn't be appropriate to drink in the mass but when the mass is over angela when it's over i want to make sure that they're not parched on their way to the reception is that all right <laughs> thank you for the clarification exactly i'm not going to do anything that, that uh, diminishes the, the sacredness of our of our mother church so tom you know taking you through your life you know you went to school in northbrook and then off to college in michigan and you came back to this area right correct but actually before that you were a journalist right 
Right. So before you went to law school, you, you were a journalist, and where was that? That was up in uh, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Uh, I lived in Eau Claire, and I was a newspaper reporter, assistant editor, columnist for five years uh, before I decided to go to law school. And you have a beautiful bride. Mm-hmm. How many years? 34. 34 years of marriage. I should have looked absolutely that up. absolutely amazing. So <laughs> you got married in your early 20s. Yes, yes, we did. And Carol, is she the same age? She's one year younger. So at a time when people weren't getting married in their early 20s anymore, you did. Yeah. So what? tell us about that. How did that happen? You know, I, she was, uh, I stayed at Northern Michigan where we were going to school for her to graduate. And uh, I got a job as a newspaper reporter in Wisconsin. My first job was in Tomo, Wisconsin. Carol, it was like we were going to be separated. And I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And she knew she wanted to spend the rest of her life with me. And it's like, well, when two people want to do that, they get married. And we committed ourselves to one another at that time and got married at the Catholic Church in Camp Douglas, Wisconsin. And our reception was at the, what is it? Uh, VFW? The VFW, exactly, yeah. Exactly. So I, I know what kind of guy you are, so I, I presume the reception was, it's something fancy like a VFW. Actually, <laughs> it was at the VFW, and we got it catered from the Coffee Cup Cafe for $3.50 a plate. Awesome. And yeah. uh, <laughs> you had, uh, you know, cans of uh, Schlitz and Rhinelander right, and, right, uh, right. you know, sitting in the tubs. So, Tom, you said that you, you knew that you were meant to be together. Is that a God thing? Was that a God thing at that time, do you believe? I, you know, now I believe it was. I was not so much uh, contemplating God and everything in my life back then. Um, I just knew in my heart, which was probably God speaking. But I can tell you that my my commitment and the sacrament of marriage, um, every marriage goes through good times and through difficult times. And we were no different, but there was never one moment in my marriage, regardless of how difficult it was, where the option was that that marriage would end because of the sanctity of marriage. Yeah, it's a and great I, witness to your children. Oh, you know, I uh, I would hope so. I hope yeah. that I could. Because even, you know, the best marriages, you know, the guy gets mad and, you know, he storms off and says he's going, he's leaving or what have you, <laughs> you know, for the night, you know. I heard that happens, by the way. <laughs> Y'all, uh, it was never a, even an issue. And what, so what a beautiful witness that is to your, your three kids. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope. I, I, yeah. you know, we can only hope that we can. Right. Be, Lord knows we're a bad witness sometimes. So, so your oldest is your daughter, Allison. Right. And how old is she now? She's uh, 33. She was born on our one-year anniversary. Allison's a beautiful uh, young lady. She was our babysitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, people that can't see her, I mean, she is absolutely stunning. I mean, she's like, she could be a model. She's, her, yeah. well, her heart is stunning. Yeah. Uh, no, but I'm saying even heart. the physical beauty is there yeah. as well. So she's a school That's teacher. That's after her, <laughs> her, her, after Carol. her mother, yeah. Yeah. And then you have two boys, Thomas and, and Scotty. Scotty, right. Tell us about the, the kids. Well, Allison is a uh, school teacher. She's got one little guy, Theo, and she's just got a beautiful heart about her. She's just got this joy and glow about her that makes everybody around her just feel wonderful. My son Thomas is uh, uh, the most caring, 
person in the world. He has two sons that he's the greatest father and husband. And my son, Scotty, just graduated from college, and he's been kind of hanging around home, kind of helping his mom and helping me in my time right now. He's kind of holding off to, uh, to get his job, but he's got a huge heart on him, too. So It's awesome. Uh, yeah. So I know that Dave Shippers, uh, your old man, he was a White Sox fan. Mm-hmm. And you, despite living on the north side, were, are a White Sox fan. Yes. And your boys... Are White Sox fans? We're all the whole family. One so, cousin is a Cubs fan. I would have thought that you know, some one of the kids was pissed off at dad and says, you know what, I'm rooting for the Cubs. No, never it didn't happened. happen. <laughs> so that's a tremendous honor that that they uh, adopted the same major league franchise. Yeah, <laughs> could, well, through the generations too. Could you yeah. tell us what uh, you know what it was like you know in, in your house with with your beautiful wife? Carol and the kids growing up. I could I could tell you this that growing up, my mom had ten of us in twelve years. Right. So we're going back to your family. That'd be perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Well, just to draw the dichotomy. Yeah. yeah. And as you might suspect, it was chaos. And the kids, there were no shrinking violets amongst my brothers and sisters. Everybody was very boisterous and big personalities and. There was just so much going on, and you know, it was discombobulated in so many different ways. And I just remember my wife, you know, with our family, everything was just so predictable. You know, there it was like we get up at this time, breakfast is going to be served at this time, you come home, and dinner is going to be served at this time. And, um, and it, you know, just that routine. I think gives kids uh, so much confidence because they know what to expect. And for me, it just gave me great, great peace with that too. And so we just had a, a lot of love in our family. I remember, you know, just kneeling down and you know praying with my kids by the bed. Those are some of my fondest memories. I were remember. your parents the the huggers and, and type? Oh uh, yes, they were big huggers. Yeah, yeah. My mom was a wonderful hugger. It was always when it, she could tell when you were having a bad day, and she'd just soak yeah. you up into those arms. You know, your parents gave you a great witness to all those years of marriage. When you decided to marry Carol, you decided that she was the right one for you, and she decided that you were the right one for her. Did the thought come to your mind that this is a person that's going to stay with me no matter what? Yes. Yeah. And that, you know, I was a young man, so yeah. I didn't think very deeply. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, but I think now, I mean, that was just something that was intuitively that I Yeah, knew. exactly. You didn't process nothing, it, but it was there. No, there was nothing like I was yeah. worried that you'd yeah. leave me or anything so like that. So I always that. had issues of abandonment, and um, my mom died when I was very small. Mm-hmm. So the, when I married Irene, I, I was certain that she would put up with me <laughs> no matter what. So that that's important, I think, for you know young people that are out there listening. Find somebody that, because surface beauty and all that stuff's going to fade. You want somebody that's going to take the good days and the bad days. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things that I, uh, and I actually wrote a column about this many, many years ago. You know, one thing, Carol and I, we don't have many of the same interests. I love outdoor stuff. I love skiing. I love canoeing. And um, she likes doing things inside. We don't have all these connections with, with recreational things. But we do agree 100% on what's right and what is wrong and that's the foundation that builds a marriage not whether or not you share an interest in skiing or a certain type of music or anything like that so it's awesome tom we'll take a break and we'll be right back 
The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is blessed with the opportunity to participate with WSFI Catholic Radio in the new evangelization. Holy Family is your local resource for books, CDs, and DVDs from Catholic Answers, Ignatius Press, and all of the other fine publishers featured on Catholic Radio. Holy Family also has the area's largest selection of baptism, communion, and confirmation gifts. Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is located at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. Want an example of a false sense of security? How about relying on the life insurance you get through work to pay for all of your final expenses? Do you have plans to retire someday? Or do you plan on working for that company for the rest of your life? The fact is, you may lose your life insurance when you leave a company. I'm Matt Tomlinson from Catholic Financial Life, and I invite you to share your hopes and dreams with me. To discuss your options for protecting your family, call me at 847-548-MAT. That's 847-548-6288. Products and services not available in all states. Hello, I'm Bill Wennington from the Church of St. Mary's and the Chicago Bulls. I, I believe Catholic Radio is important for all of us out there listening to help us through days when maybe our faith is being challenged by many different obstacles that are put in our way. And it's a chance to reflect and just think and hear stories from other people that maybe are going through the exact same issues that we are going through and how they have struggled and how they are getting through their problems today. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at WSFIRadio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. Welcome back uh, to WSFI 88.5 FM Radio. I'm here with Tom Shippers, and Tom is taking us uh, through his journey as a Catholic man, Catholic gentleman, I might say. Tom, when we last broke, you were telling us about your family, and, and your first job was as a reporter. How did that happen? Well, I was in law school, and I always really enjoyed writing, and I worked for the uh, school newspaper, and I had a little thought to go into law school, but I really wanted to write, and I thought I could always go to law school someday, uh, but if I went to law school, I'd never be a journalist, so I decided to pursue that. So my dad was a lawyer, and I worked for a year between college and law school, and I think that what the job that I was supposed to do was, was be a lawyer. You know, I, I felt like that was what the Lord put on my heart. But because my dad was a lawyer, and he was successful, and he was, you know, the personality and the relationship. Love my dad to death. Love all that he did for our family. But we didn't always get along. So, I, you know, I, I think I resisted that. Mm-hmm. Did you have a similar... Uh, yeah, you know, I always got along with my dad very well, but there was this independent streak in me that he was a very well-known lawyer in Chicago. Um, you know, he was considered one of the top defense lawyers in all of Chicago, and and I wanted to be my own person. Right. And I figured if I went to law school right away, and you know, and I just had that independent streak, and he really encouraged it, us to do whatever it was our heart was calling us to do. So what happened the, the moment that you decided you were to go to law school? You know, I had, I just had this something inside of me that I knew I had to do something besides what I was doing, and it wasn't just to get another job. It was something that had to be important. I remember covering several trials and watching what was going on in the courtroom and saying, I don't want to be the critic. 
I want to be the one in the arena. I want to be the one fighting for whatever the cause was. And so kind of at that moment, it's like... Um, Taking that Teddy Roosevelt quote. quote. Exactly, the man in the arena. And so I started... You know, at lunchtime, practicing the LSAT while I was a newspaper reporter. We had, Allison was born at that time, and Carol was a stay-at-home mom. So I ended up taking the LSAT, getting admitted to Loyola, and so we sold our house, packed up our bags, and moved to Chicago. And so Carol's been right there supportive all the time, huh? Oh, she's been. Yeah, I know you love her so much. wonderful. So, Tom, law school, what was that like? I absolutely loved it. <laughs> so you went to Loyola University Law School. Yeah, went at night and worked during the day. Where my wife, Irene Helkius Curran, went, Loyola University Law School. I went to Chicago Kent, a secular law school. Yeah, and not as good IIT. as IIT. Mm, that's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> Kent's pretty good. Tom, you know, law school, it lived up to the expectations? You know, I was out for five years. Um, I was giving up time for my family, for my daughter, for my wife. It was a very deliberate decision. It wasn't just something like, I'm done with college now, what should I do? And so I went in there with my heart on it to, to succeed through it. When I went to law school, you know, I was hoping, I'm thinking all these people that are so smart. I, was, I remember praying, Lord, um, if I could just get C's. I will be so blessed, you know, just to get through it. So right. I went in there not expecting anything and just knowing that I was going to try my hardest to get through. And Tom is a very humble guy. You know, Billy Elward, who was a co-worker of Tom and I when we were in the Attorney General's office, pointed out to me years ago that Tom was valedictorian in law school. Tom doesn't tell anybody that. So he was worried about getting C's, and yet he aced everything. That's pretty amazing. I didn't ace everything, but... <laughs> so what do, you, what do you attribute that to, your great success there? Oh, hard work. Also, one of the, one of the great uh, skills that I learned as a newspaper reporter is every day for five years, I had three hours to type up one, two, three, maybe four stories for a deadline, um, or four hours. And uh, so you're writing under pressure, and that's all that's what law school is is you're writing under pressure you have three hours to write a semester worth of knowledge that you had based upon essay questions and I remember the first test I had I kind of like had the pencil in my mouth and I'm like all right this is just like writing a newspaper story and so I was uh, I was very calm which um, just because I was acclimated to that and so I attribute much of my success uh, to that did you pray a lot during law school before exams especially yeah exactly <laughs> and that's you know that that's really the way I, I was too you know what I mean it was so much stress and what have you that it, it yeah. basically it's like all right God I need this this and this and you know it was never like prayers of Thanksgiving it was a different or prayer exactly. it's like all right you're the guy we go see to get those things that we want yeah law school was stressful enough that I think anybody with a baby's faith would probably be doing those praying. prayers yeah. praying on some level you made it through law school you did really well and then the next discernment in life was what do I do mm-hmm. as a lawyer. Carol and I had saved some money and we lived with my mom and dad for about eight months and then we bought a house. We sold our house in Eau Claire, a 10-year-old house, um, and we couldn't buy a garage here for what we sold our house for. We were out of money. Like right when we were out of money, I got an offer from Gardner, Carton, and Douglas, which was a very prestigious law firm for a summer associate job where they paid you a, a very, very nice wage. And it was amazing how the sequence worked. And so the financial situation with us, that was something that, that I felt I, I had to had to do at that you time. You had to pray again, huh? Mm-hmm. You had yeah. more, you had more 
things that you, <laughs> you <Yeah>. need. <laughs> Tom, for those of you that don't know him better, I'm going to tell you this. Tom is one of these guys and doesn't chase all the things, you know. I mean, he lives in the same house, very simple house in Mundelein and, and drives old cars and what have you. Money was never a real big deal for you, was it? I would like to say no. Whenever I took jobs, I've had several jobs in the legal community and a couple of them I took very significant pay cuts to take a different job. But it was because I just saw that job as a something better for the community, something that would be more fulfilling and giving back. So that brings us to the next one. You, you went to the state's attorney's office right after Gardner? Right. What was the magnet there? I wanted to be a trial lawyer, and I wanted to be in court like my dad. And when you work at a very large law firm, it was amazing. I remember we were sitting at a, a litigation meeting, and there's 40 lawyers, many of them you know, from 60 to 35 years old. And the question was asked, how many of you had had a jury trial? And like five hands went up. And I'm, then how many of you had had bench trials? And like half the hands went up. And I'm thinking, holy cow, I want to be in court. You know, yeah. I don't want to just be working on briefs. And with the size of those cases, right. it never makes uh, economic sense to go to trial. And so um, I wanted to be in court. When I interviewed with Mike Waller up here in Lake County, it just, I don't find it fulfilling defending one Fortune 500 company against another Fortune 500 company against meritorious claims. Right. I, I wanted to be in the... Uh, Once again, in the arena, right. Christian warrior to be on the front lines. Yeah. Tom, let me ask you this with regards to your career. So you go to the state's attorney's office, you have to take a pay cut. Mm-hmm. Are you praying for the intercession of St. Thomas More? No, I was not at that time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, growing uh, up, we didn't, they didn't really tell us how these saints worked too well, did they? No. And, uh, you know, my family, we were, you know, we were very Catholic, but it was back in the day, there was not a lot of discussion about our faith. And uh, you and I you were know, catechized during probably the worst period to be catechized in the Catholic Church. We're both yeah. in our, I'm 55 times, just slightly older than that. And we, what we learned, we could basically write on the one sheet of paper, right? In yeah. terms of Catholic theology. Right, right, right. So, I, I did a lot of praying to make the, the right decision. At that time, I wasn't praying for the intercession of saints. Right, I didn't even know. If you ask me, probably even after 16 years of Catholic schools, including college, in the saints, I'd say, no, no, you pray directly to the saint. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so this intercession concept didn't even hit until later. And, you know, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm a smart enough guy that I think that I probably wouldn't have understood that if I was actually taught it. Yeah. So, Tom, moving along, you're in the state's attorney's office, you're enjoying life. What are, what are you learning about God's plan for people as, you're, as a practicing lawyer now? Gosh. You know, one thing my, my dad always taught me is that the system is not about you. You know, as lawyers, we tend to have huge egos and we go into court and people say, oh, that was a great opening statement or that was a great cross or that was a great closing. It's all about us. But it's about something much, much bigger than us. It's about justice and doing it within the ethical bounds of procedural laws and the substantive laws. You were a lawyer for many, or you are a lawyer and have been a trial lawyer for many, many years. And you know that, that some people do not have any concept of that at all. It's like win at all costs, or it's about me at all costs, and and then there's others who really abide by that. Tom, there's seven deadly sins. Pride, lust, envy, anger, greed, gluttony, and sloth. Lawyers, I think greed is like probably one that they're honest. They they definitely struggle with. You know, Mm -hmm. you get a million-dollar case, well, the other lawyer got two million. Well, I want that. (laughs) I want two million. He was able to buy a house in Colorado, and my summer house is only in Michigan. It's always envy, which is another deadly sin. 
you never really seem to struggle, you know, at least outwardly with much of those. Do you have anything you'd like to share just as a lawyer? Were there any sins that would, would hit you that, you know, you felt like it was a battle? Oh, pride, definitely. Because, you know, just like I was saying, you know, you you do a very good job in court and people tell you what a good job you did. did you, were you also thinking, I'm better than that guy? Oh, always. Yeah, exactly. Always, always. And, you're, all, and you're always thinking if somebody, like, else gets a compliment. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, you know, he's not that great, <laughs> right? We're just so lacking in assurance, and I think that's part of being a lawyer. The know? drive. Yeah, and it's always a struggle. My dad was, he was a lawyer, and he, he dressed immaculately, and he mm-hmm. would kill me if I walked out of the house with shoes that weren't polished, what have you. So it's taking pride in yourself, taking pride in the motions that you filed, that they're well-written, that they're well-founded, but not taking pride to the extent that it's all about me. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a balance somewhere, right? But there's something to be said for St. Jose Maria Escriva always talks about that. No matter what your job is, you've got you've to take, uh, you've got to do your job very, very well. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you are sweeping floors or whether you're the president of the United States, you've got an obligation to do it very, very well. And so how you look is very important as a lawyer because juries judge you all the time, judges judge you all the time. And uh, how you present yourself and how you write are though are very, very important things in, in, serve, in doing the best for your client. And so those are very important. What's important is to, to say, though, that I'm doing this not for my own acclaim, but to represent my client to the best of my ability right. because I owe it to that person to yeah. do that. And all for the glory of God. And all what? for the glory of God, exactly. And Jose Maria Escriva, for those that are listening that aren't familiar, he's... So Jose Maria Escriva is patron saint for uh, Opus Dei as, as well. Tom and I go on Opus Dei retreats from time to time. We've had great spiritual mentors on those retreats. Yep. Could you talk a little bit about how that... Those retreats have helped you in terms of strengthening your faith and renewing you? The first retreat I went on was about 12 years ago, and it was a silent retreat, and it was the first time that I had actually spent four days of doing nothing but contemplating God and Christ and my faith and praying. And it was transformative in my life because um, I felt that God and Christ were talking to me. Not like, hey, Tom, do this, but I just felt a connection that I never had before. I want to bring Tom a little bit further. After practicing law, you you went to work for, uh, you left the state attorney's office, you went to D.C. with your dad, where your dad was the head of the Clinton impeachment from the House Judiciary. Mm -hmm. That had to be a heck of an experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Bear in mind, this is also a Catholic radio, so you could tell us what your observations were in terms of the faith of of Washington, D.C., or lack of. Well, there was a lot of faith there, believe it or not. Henry Hyde was chair of the Judiciary Committee, a devout Catholic. He would have a priest come in to the uh, Republican Committee anteroom and say Mass on a routine basis. We would get communion before many of the hearings, a full Mass before many of the hearings. He was an avid pro-life person, and he was working on uh, some speeches before the House during that time, which were beautiful, eloquent speeches about that. And so there was a lot of faith there, but there was a lot of partisanship where faith, what's right or wrong, didn't matter. It was, what side are you on? And it right. was, and I saw it on both sides. Yeah, so it absolutely. It was very, very discouraging. Right. And I think, Tom, you and I share that. 
both parties are equally to blame on, on so much. Oh, gosh. Yeah. When it comes to, yeah. to the partisanship, it was... Yeah, exactly. Um, and neither party is Catholic, right? Right, right, you know, right, they had right. Some issues on this side and some issues on that side. From uh, there, you came back, you worked for the Attorney General of Illinois with where I was at, and we worked for Jim Ryan, a wonderful right. man. He was a good example as far as a Catholic uh, leader and gentleman, wasn't he? He sure was, absolutely. Yeah. A solid, solid human being. Mm-hmm. Then you went into private practice by yourself, sharing space with Matt Dudley and, and Tom Lake, and then becoming of counsel with those gentlemen, right? Yeah, and partner before I before I got on the bench. Yeah, right. Getting to that uh, the bench. Um, so th- that was a great experience. You, you were able to make a lot of money because those guys really know how to do things the right way. Well, a lot is relative, so. <laughs> <laughs> right. A lot, well, exactly. I mean, you, you didn't do it that long to, to no. really bank a whole lot. But the bench. So I, the listeners are like, what, bench? You know, because I haven't mentioned the fact that it is Judge Tom Shippers that we're speaking with. Why did you decide you want to be a judge, and how did it happen? And yeah, you Was know, it a dream come true? I never contemplated being a judge. You know, one of the things that I've learned in my life is we all try to take control of our lives and what I've been working on, and I think I'm getting there a little bit, is giving up of everything to Christ. And Christ, Jesus Christ is in control. And we all have our ideas of where we're going to go. And I was just looking at a quote from somebody that there's only two moments that matter, and it's now and at the hour of our death. And I never I never contemplated being a judge. I never thought about it. I never pursued it. Um, a couple of judges just came up to me and said, let's go out to lunch and said, would you like to become a judge? And it was uh, something, like I said, I had never thought about it. And then I, I started thinking about it um, and talked to my wife and uh, thought, you know, even though my, uh, my, my practice was going very well and things were getting better and better, um, it was something that I uh, prayed about and, and decided to do. And you, when you became a judge, I was there, and the robe uh, was placed on you. Your dad was there. Mm-hmm. So what? that must have been really a cool moment, huh? Yeah, he swore me in, actually. My yeah. father did, yeah. Yeah, that was a wonderful moment. Yeah, so your dad, he was, he was beaming with pride. Mm-hmm. Ten kids. One of the kids, he gives the name to St. Thomas More Shippers, and it's that one kid that decides to go to law school, become a lawyer, and then become a judge. So very providential. You know, God is at work in the decision between your mom, Jackie, and your dad, Dave, as to the name that you were going to have. Tom, how does your faith impact your judging? My faith impacts my judging, I think, I, w- I hope tremendously, because, um, you know, Anton Scalia gave a great quote. He said, uh, you know, mine, and he, he's, uh, you know, was a devout Catholic, and he said, you know, my job is not justice. My job is to follow the law. If you could follow the law and meet out justice, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. But oftentimes, if you're following the law, personally, I don't like the result. But if I were to ignore the law in order to get a result that I want, then it's, we would have no law at all. We would have anarchy. Everybody would be working under their own set of laws. And we know that cannot work. And so that's just kind of an overview. What I would do you know, every morning before I got on the benches, I would just pray for discernment that I would that I would be able to follow the law, and if I had discretion, and to be and to be kind and decent to every single person that appeared before me. If I have discretion on something, that uh, that I show compassion 
and meet out whatever it was that I was doing with a measured, measured hand and to never let my emotions and my anger, whatever it might be, come into play. And that's through prayer. Yeah, absolutely. Which brother was it that said the prayer? My brother, Kevin. Kevin said the prayer. And Kevin's not a Catholic, but I remember he said that you were going to be judged on the basis of the way you judged. Yeah. And, yep. I mean, does that weigh on you sometimes that, that do I, I need to make this judgment right in the civil sense, but God is going to judge me on the way I handle this? Yeah, it, I've never angst over that at all because I've never made a decision other than one that I believed was right based upon the law and was right based upon the circumstances of that particular situation. I have made decisions where later I thought about it and said, gosh, I think I messed up on that. But then I've always come back and told the lawyers, I think I messed up on that decision. Even though it's very, very important work and you can, you know, when you're making judgments on other people, that's very heady stuff. All we could do is the best that we can do under those circumstances. And if we do the best and if we're motivated by the right things and we follow the law, then that's all I could ask myself. And do you see sometimes also, you know, like society has this hanging mentality and you see it with somebody does something wrong. The stories out there now is... Jesse Smollett or, you know, the kids from Covington. And everybody just wants to jump on it and pound the heck out of whoever the sinner is. Mm-hmm. And the judge has to, like, use a little bit of restraint and try to see, are there redeeming qualities? Is there mitigation? Balance it all out. And you don't get it frothing at the mouth, let's put this guy in the chair right now, as, as they might be. Yeah. A judge can't do that. Exactly. You don't want to you don't want to be making any decision on your raw emotions. It should be a very measured decision based upon the different factors that the law tells you that you must consider. And if you're dealing with just some emotion like anger or hate or whatever, you should not be making any decision at that point because it's not a measured decision. Please. It's based upon your emotion. My view is that should never be done and Moving along with with regards to that, blessed are they, you know, the meek. The judge has got to be the guy that kind of has an eye out for them, the, the downtrodden. Johnny Cochran said the color of justice is neither black nor white, it's green. Lawyer that gets paid a lot of money, what have you, his accesses, client him, believes that he has greater access. Does any of that stuff come into play for a judge? I would hope not. You know, we're human beings. I strive. You know, we we are taught about implicit bias. We've been taught that for quite some time. You know, these biases that we have that aren't right up there on the surface, but there's somewhere, there's an undercurrent there, and we should be aware of it. And uh, I have always striven to whoever appears before me, I don't care who they are, I don't care who their lawyer is, I strive to treat them exactly the same as anybody else. And I think most of the judges that I know strive to do that. Tom, I've really enjoyed talking to you, but I, I haven't gotten to the part that, that for the listeners out there that we, we really want to talk about. You have cancer, mm-hmm. and you have been given what's essentially a terminal diagnosis, if you will, at some point. You know, we're praying for a miracle. Let's go back to when, when did the cancer, when did you find out you had cancer, and how did that happen? I found out I had cancer in May of 19, 2017. Could you take us through what led up to your learning that you had cancer? Sure. My grandson, Tommy, had had lived with us, and he's like my soulmate. I love him more than anything in the whole wide world. And he was living with us at the time. 
and he got a virus that um, started constricting his airway and he was at a hospital here locally and ended up being transferred to intensive care at Lutheran General. Before he was transferred there, I saw a good friend of mine uh, who is now a deacon and he was a deacon then, uh, Gerald Nora. He's a deacon at St. Mary of Vernon. and. Uh, he saw me and he was all excited to see me then he saw my face and uh, he's like oh my goodness tom what's wrong and i told him and i started crying and we walked into the chapel and i told him about how he couldn't breathe and he just said this beautiful prayer about how christ on the cross could not breathe and knows the suffering of not being able to take a breath and lord if you could give the breath of life to that little guy i kind of took that prayer with me and when he was transferred to Lutheran General he was in very very bad shape and uh, we were there on a Sunday. And how old was he at the time? Uh, uh, one and a half. One and a half. Yeah so he weighs 20 pounds yeah. or something like that. And he was such a trooper he could hardly breathe and he just had this wonderful character and he'd give you hugs yeah. and it was just, he wasn't taking his breathing treatments, though, and things were getting, uh, we were there in the afternoon, and things were good, and I just had such a bad feeling. I went there again at night, and he was doing even worse, and I left with this horrible feeling of foreboding, and uh, whenever I have real difficult times, I, um, I find great peace at... Uh, uh, Marytown. One of the most beautiful places on earth. Yeah, peaceful and it's so holy there. And they have perpetual adoration of the Blessed Sacrament there 24-7. You can go there time and night. And I, I went to bed and I woke up, you know, like 2 a.m. and I just had this horrible feeling. And so I went to Marytown and I was praying the rosary. It was the sorrowful mysteries that I was praying and contemplating the agony of the garden. And where Christ said, uh, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine will be done. I got a shudder through me, and I'm like, Lord, no, don't tell me you're taking my little Tommy. Because that's what the message I thought that he was sending. And I said, and at that moment, or I said, Lord, if it were me, it would be so easy, but not this little guy who brings such, such joy to the world. At that moment, I mean, at that instant, I had this sudden realization that I was fundamentally ill, that I was very, very ill. And I said out loud right there in Marytown, I'm not afraid to die, but please don't take my little Tommy. And so I went back home. We got a call that he's doing really badly, and so my wife and I were getting dressed. Sorry. No, I, I remember your constant text to pray for uh, Tommy. Yeah, I called my brothers. They were they were in Florida. My four brothers, I was supposed to be there with them. It was a trip we had planned for a year. And I called them at 3 a.m. And I said, you guys get up. You got to sit around together. You got to pray for Tommy. You know, where two or more people pray, right? And all my brothers got up out of bed and they sat there and prayed for little Tommy. I called my uncle. I talked to you. I was praying to the, the novena, to the infant baby of Jesus. So a miracle happened with Tommy. He was Yeah, he cured. ended up being healed, yeah. So you had this premonition. You know, it wasn't like Moses with a burning bush where you heard God's voice, right? It's just no. a, it's like a sense. People that, that haven't experienced this may not completely understand it, but do you get this clarity 
in your head that it, it feels as though the message is from God. Yeah, it was a sense that it was an irrefutable feeling that I had within me that I was very sick. I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I just knew I was very sick. So what'd you do with that information? You know, after Tommy got better, I went to my doctor and just said, you know, I'd had a little pain in my left side. So I went to the doc and I had a feeling it was it was cancer. And so the doctor, I had to have my colonoscopy for a while. So she did a complete upper and lower GI. And I remember waking up with my wife there, and the doc says, um, everything looks good. And I looked at Carol, and I said, I can't believe it. I know I have cancer. I went back to the doctor and said, something is wrong. I just know it. So she does CT, and that's when they found a tumor on my uh, the tail of my pancreas. And once they found the, the tumor on the tail, I knew that it was, I knew that it was cancerous. And even before that, they didn't even want to do a biopsy, did they? Well, one of the docs said, we'll just watch it. And thank goodness my primary care doc. But my primary care doc was like, no, no, we're not watching a a tumor on the pancreas. We're going to go see what it is. Tom, you went to Houston, renowned for treating that pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. It all worked out pretty well there. Uh, yeah, you up know, to that I, point. I, yeah, up to that point, it was, um, you know, pancreas cancer is one of the worst cancers that a person can get. Like a 2% survival or something. It's like very that. low. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the, you know, one of the, the survival rates are, I think that in small cell lung cancer are the two worst cancers that anybody could get. So even when I got it, I knew the chance of a recurrence was very high, even though my surgery was, was successful at that time. Yeah, so you went to Houston, they cut out what part of your pancreas and part of your gallbladder? A spleen. Spleen, I'm sorry. It's uh, very close. <laughs> now, at that point in time, you came back and they thought it looked like they had gotten it all in a miracle. Yeah, it looked like there was no sign of cancer. You went back for tests even after that and mm-hmm. there were still no signs of cancer, right? Right. And so you think, God, thank you, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you probably were led to believe that the miracle happened only by virtue of your going to say a prayer for your grandson and you receiving this information at that moment in time and you're getting treated and and diagnosed and treated for a disease that otherwise kills people because Mm -hmm. they don't know about it till it's too late in the game right because it doesn't it doesn't manifest itself with pain until for many people until it's throughout all your organs yeah tell us you know what's going on then you know you talk about uh you kind of mentioned you know that i you know presuming that i'm thinking it's a miracle but um i went through it a lot differently than that because once i first got diagnosed i went through a um, tremendous spiritual experience battles with the devil battles with my past uh, battles with my sinfulness and you know what tore at me more than anything were my sins of omission because they were so amorphous they were hard to get my hand around and i really believed that the devil was was attacking me i felt like i was not even worthy of prayer the good lord just spoke to me i went to marytown again during these battles in the dark of the night and through reading the gospels through reading some of the spiritual books i've been reading through the homilies i got from the priests started being just revealed to me that you know my self-pity I was like I was I was angsting so much over my selfishness of the past just everything was about me 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 thinking of being a lawyer and thinking of you know just how am I going to please myself and it came there was a realization that that self-pity for my former sins was the epitome of selfishness 
because I'm just wallowing within myself. And every message I got was, you confess your sins, and that's why Christ suffered on the cross. He suffered because we are sinful. And once we confess our sins, Christ forgives us, and it was a very hard thing for me to get there. But if we don't accept that, then Jesus Christ was not telling us the truth, and we know that to be wrong. It was the first time in my life that when I went to confession, it was, I went into confession and walked out truly committed to sin no more. So many, uh, and so, through this prayer, the good Lord gave me, and you know, it was a very arduous and, I mean, tremendous battles at night. But it was a process, and I just prayed and prayed and said, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, uh, and I, I got to the point where didn't matter what happened in the future. All that mattered was what I'm doing today. And from early on, I had, uh, got, and it's just a grace that the good Lord gave to me. Um, before I was ever even diagnosed officially with cancer, I had this peace about me that it didn't matter what the doctors said. I was ready to live for today. I was not thinking about dying because I had no control over when I was going to die. That's the good Lord. So, you know, from a Catholic's perspective, two things that resonate. Jesus, I trust in you. Right. And thy will be done. Exactly. 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 But Mm -hmm. you were living it and it was actually happening. Yes. And so I never said, oh my gosh, Jesus, you gave me a miracle because I found the cancer where the doctors think that it could be curable. That was something that I never... So I, I committed myself that any news I ever got from the doctor, I would it would neither be celebratory mm-hmm. nor it would be solemn. I would take it with an even keel because I was committed to live every day as if it were my last and that whether or not the doctor said it's through your lymph nodes and you've got a month to live or whether or not they said you have you potentially could be cured it's hard maybe for some people to i was living day to day because and i just do. asking to, to be able to glorify the lord in that day at exactly. that moment tom this is all amazing you go as fast as you want <laughs> okay yeah we're actually we got a friend jeff pavletic who i want to we'll finish with him i'm thinking the cancer is gone and people say how's shippers doing no he's doing great the cancer's gone and clearly the difference was that you know this only your faith only grew from the experience and you you wanted to evangelize as a a witness absolutely yeah absolutely now there were opportunities to evangelize to people that wouldn't exist otherwise because you had been on the brink of death and, and everything that had transpired people wanted to talk to you especially when you were the cancer was being cut out right right we're praying for a miracle but i mean reality is the odds aren't so great yeah that was one of my greatest problems as a, as a catholic was my inability to evangelize and now i tell people it's a lot yeah. easier because who's going to tell like a cancer you can't talk about god yeah exactly. <laughs> and i i've said this before i, I actually didn't really expect you to die i, I didn't know what the heck was going to happen because i'm thinking if there's a, a guy that's deserving of a miracle or who would be a great witness for the lord yeah. for a miracle to happen it, w- it would be you tom you're evangelizing and then what comes back then we had just uh, buried my mom right after my dad and then we went we buried her in wisconsin and then i drove home and then flew out to houston and i had a little spot on my liver that they thought might have been a shadow but the doc said that the spot on my liver was grown and mm-hmm. we didn't know what it was. There was quite a period of time lapse between when yes, they found that months. spot yeah. and then 
but I had. So how much longer is this since your first diagnosis of cancer? Well, I was first diagnosed in May, and so I found out in December that the cancer was back. Did you ever think to yourself, okay, Lord, it could have been a miracle, and I could have like been able to go out there and tell this great story about this miracle you performed, but now I got the cancer back, so it kind of sure. weakens my story, Lord, so you yeah. know, you're, you're not helping yourself out either. Right. It's like, Lord, would you please listen to me? Yeah. I'm right. You're not. Uh, I never did feel that, actually. Um, I never felt woe is me because I try every morning. I pray. I pray an hour at least every morning, sometimes two hours, and I just ask that I empty everything of myself and that all I need, Lord, is your love and your grace. And it doesn't matter when I die. I really, I really truly believe that. God has the date when I'm going to die. You're not living and, for this world. You're living for your eternal home. Yes, but I'm living for today, too. And it's like, you know, that yeah. quote I saw, you know, there's only two times in life that matters, now and at right. the hour of Amen. your death. And just this, this peace that Christ has given me of not angsting about tomorrow, I've never... I've woken up where I feel evil has been attacking me, but it's because of my sinfulness. I have never woken up sweating, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. So you told me that I was able to talk to Cardinal George when he was dying, and he was worrying about, had similar concerns where the devil wasn't allowing you to believe that your past sins had been forgiven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're like, no, no, there's too much here. But, you know, ultimately you were able to grasp that concept yes but it's uh we talked about this this morning he sneaks right back in there the devil doesn't he He doesn't go away you know one of the one of the things i pray is that you know if this cancer takes me lord uh that you give me a holy and peaceful death but if it's not a peaceful death and i go through spiritual and physical suffering that i may sanctify that suffering and through that move closer to the sacred heart of Jesus. Uh, and you offer that, that suffering, suffering up for your family. And Absolutely. And friends and, for and everyone out in the world. For Christ, right. Yeah, and we believe that as Catholics, that yep. the power of your suffering uh, can can be given to others that, that need it. Right, and pray that I not be afraid of suffering. And that's why, like, the world is thinking, Dr. Kaborki, you know, I don't need to go through any of this. But Catholics, we believe that's where all the power is, Christ on the cross. Absolutely. And you become Christ on the cross through your suffering and now you can your children have these struggles yes lord lord in my suffering mm-hmm. uh, may you give mercy to my child that they may exactly have insight yeah. uh, that's awesome tom everything your story is just so incredible i want to take you to two last things lords you went to our lady of lords Tell me what happened. It just happened two weeks ago. Yeah, but I'm still trying to discern. I'll give the background. Yeah. Lourdes is in uh, in France. It's an apparition site. What that means is that the Blessed Mother appeared to people, and the church has recognized Saint it. St. Bernadette. And in this instance, it was St. Bernadette. She went to where an area where there was dry area. Water came out, and it became a famous spring for mm-hmm. that area. And that was the miracle that was performed. And all these other people came. And, yeah. and a lot of people, Joan McHugh, one of them, mm-hmm. our good friend, have had their cancer cured while being at Lourdes yeah. at some point in time. Mm-hmm. So tell us what happened for uh, you. Yeah, you know, I went to Lourdes just hoping for more graces from our Lord and not ex- not going there expecting a physical healing or not going there expecting anything other than to get closer to to God and to, and to Christ and to continue to try to work on sanctification, to continue to work on that seemingly impossible task of uh, becoming a saint. And what, you know, when I was there, you know, just praying, it's such a beautiful place, and you could feel the holiness there. And, 
you know, one of the things that struck me was how meek I am and how lowly I am and how broken and how sinful I am. Tom, I thought one of the most amazing things was you had felt as though you were in communication with the Blessed Mother where she would actually show you at times that she was disappointed in something or another that you had, may have done. It wasn't, it wasn't so much as a, a communication, you know, like Mary talking to me, but praying to Mary for her intercession that my, that my pilgrimage to Lourdes would be fruitful. And I just had this image of her frowning. You know, just not happy. And there is a statue of Mary there, based upon what Bernadette said, where where she is frowning. And there were things that happened on the trip there where, when I look back on it, I was not as charitable as I should have been. And um, when I was there, when you... <laughs> it, it's amazing, but if you don't know about St. Bernadette, her life, you know, she... You know, God chose her for Mary to appear before her, but... Uh, her life after the apparitions is what is truly amazing. Her true yeah. humility. When, the miracles that happened. Yeah, well, the miracles, but yeah. just her, the miracles that happened at Lourdes, um, you know, from the springs, verified mm-hmm. miracles by the church. I got to jump in. Today's the apparition of the spring. Oh, it is. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. my gosh. And Tom was there on the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes as yeah. well, the Monday, the, uh, what was it, the 11th? The 11th, right. Yeah. St. Bernadette's Feast Day. Yeah, and uh, so when you're when you're there in such a holy place, and you're thinking of these saints and of Mary and of Jesus Christ, it just uh, you know Bishop Barron said this once. It's like you know when you let the light of Christ shine into your heart, and you truly let it shine in there, you know, as God uh, to see yourself as God sees you, you're going to see some areas that uh, are not so pleasant. And uh, that's kind of like the process that I went through. My, you know, the graces I got there was, oh my goodness, I've got a lot of work that I've got to do. And once we get comfortable with our situation spiritually and our 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 relationship, you know, with Christ is, uh, you know, once we get comfortable with that, I think that's when we start falling away. That we've got to constantly strive every day. Yeah, you know, from my my perspective, one of the things that you know that getting back to the seven deadlies envy for me was the blessed mother like you said that uh, when she was disappointed you you sensed that and that's like a real mother and that's what our, our that's what the blessed mother is supposed to be for us is a real mother not just you know ave maria and you know and uh this beautiful ornate uh statute but you know in, in that relationship is not one that most people grasp. No. Not this side of the grave. So anybody that loved their mother tremendously and when your mother would look at you uh, disappointedly, um, you know how that could go right to your heart. It's like, oh my goodness. And so that's what I just see as um, part of my my journey is to every single day you know, do a self-reflection and strive to, uh, you know, to get closer to Sacred Heart of Jesus. Tom, do you contemplate death? No. Yeah, and so um, we've talked about this, Heaven. We don't really know that much about it. We'll just have to trust Jesus. All I know, and we, yeah. I went to a um, uh, Father Stephen Brock gave yeah. a talk at yeah. St. Mary in uh, yeah. Lake Forest on a Saturday morning about Heaven, and everybody's like, okay, it's this, it's that. Everybody has their visions. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes in really deep prayer, I just get this, like, this, uh, this electricity around me where I'm just, I'm like not there. And I think it's just a little tiny, tiny ray of our Lord coming into me. And uh, all I know is that if you're in the presence of Jesus Christ and God Almighty, 
and you're in the presence of Mary and all the saints, that is, that's the ecstasy that we hear about when St. Bernadette is looking at Mary or when the saints are communicating with divinity. Um, that's what heaven is. And so whether there's harps or whether there's anything yeah. else, to be in their presence um, is, that's all I, that's all yeah, I that's awesome. Um, but it doesn't matter to me if there's harps or green pastures. Uh, what matters to me is that the good Lord have mercy yeah. on me. Yes, and sir. you know, you, you've always talked about like th- these blessings. I know that all through, you know, like Tom was saying, you know how nice it was that your parents had preceded you in death that they didn't <laughs> have to deal oh, yeah. with the cancer having come back. Right, that would have killed them. That yeah, would've, that would have. And that, w- that was probably the Lord being providential. You know what I mean? And you're, for your struggle, who knows? Yeah, we, we always try to guess what the Lord's intentions were. We have no idea. I mean, it's, no, no. What can we do? Pray for you. Continue to pray for you. Obviously, right? Pray for my family. Your family. I would ask. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I think that it's harder on um, the people that love you than it is on the person afflicted with the disease. And um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they're great people. Because I have, um, you know, I tell people this, and it's the God's truth. I have, I just have great joy in my heart. Um, and like when we're talking right now. Yeah. Um, and seeing Angela. You're just reflecting like, on I all just, the gifts. But I just, I'm so thankful. One of the things that really assisted me through all this was was being thankful for the gifts that the good Lord has given me. And, uh, you know, people would say to me, Tom, oh, my God, this is horrible. Life is so unfair. And my response would be, you know what? Life is very unfair. Um, how is it that the good Lord has graced upon me 58 years of the most beautiful gifts that anybody could ever imagine. And and all of them undeserving. Yeah, exactly. And they were bestowed upon me by the Lord. And so uh, there's there's it's there's there's no thought about why me at all. Yeah, why me? Why have you given me so many gifts? You know, and uh, and why haven't I grasped it a little better earlier? But today is the day. And all I could do is today. And um, right. um Praise um, be God Almighty is all I got to oh, say. Oh, amen. Last Easter season, a good friend of Tom and I, uh, Jeff Pavletic, became a Catholic. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, he was, he was older than both Tom and I. How older. <laughs> <laughs> he's a hair older than the two of us, and we're, we're going to meet him in a minute. But uh, he's an awesome guy, and how cool is that when you, when you may have helped bring somebody into the church? Yeah. That's wonderful. That's what... That's what that's what our goal is, right? And yeah. you know, he told us, Mark, if you recall, you know, when yeah. uh, whenever we'd have conversations, it was you know we talk about the bears or whatever, but we'd always get to religion and start talking about our faith, and um, and he would always listen, and uh, unbeknownst to us, you know, yeah, we started the going seeds to, were planted, yeah. So and then he got baptized uh, about a year ago, and, and we were there, and, and we it was there, awesome, it was wonderful, d- yeah. What a, what a great Flanagan. celebration! Yeah, great celebration. It, it really is, and, yeah. and um, the reason why it's so exciting is because the Catholic Church is it's so rich and it's so. Oh, we have so uh, many blessings yeah. and the sacraments. It's so cool to be Catholic. Saints. Yeah, exactly. The uh, universal church. You know, most of. Uh, the worldwide Christians, you know, what I mean, the Church of Jesus Christ, you know, uh, it's just—it's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's awesome, and it's—it's it's where all the hope and all in in where uh, everything that you believe about what's going to happen with your body is uh, illustrated through the teachings of the Church, yeah. and not just 
the Holy Scripture, but the, the you traditions. know the traditions exactly, and, and yeah. the, you know the stories of the saints that you don't learn about those in public school. No, yeah, no, no, the miracles. You'll get in trouble if you learn. <laughs> so, uh, Tom, this has been awesome. For all those of y'all out there, you've been listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Judge Thomas Moore Shippers. Pray for his family and uh, pray for a miracle. Thank you. This has been WSFI Spotlight. For more information on this or any other program, email info at wsfiradio.org.